it's important to realize that, you know, we might not be interested in politics, but we no longer can remain neutral. I don't think that we can remain on the fence because this movement really is harmful to human persons on a natural level, unjust, unmerciful, and ultimately very supernaturally dangerous. I think this is fundamentally a spiritual battle. So I think Christians can no longer remain on the fence at this point. Welcome to Indie Thinker with Reed Huberman. You're about to make the jump from the dishonest mainstream media into free and independent thought from key thought leaders on the subjects of culture, causes, politics, and faith. Our guest today is Noelle Maring. She is a theologian philosopher and the author of a brand new book, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. Her voice in the culture, and especially in the church, could not be more important as the progressive movement begins to slowly creep its way into our lives. Today we'll talk about what's really behind the renormalization of societal norms, cultural Marxism, the real reason cancel culture exists, and the invasion of the Christian church by progressive ideals. Today you'll get a class A guest with a class A education that will help you make a difference in the world. Before we jump into that, please do us a big favor. Please make sure to subscribe on our channel and to rate and share this content with others. It's a huge help to us and helps us continue to bring on great guests like Noel. Well, let's go ahead and jump into the conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Noel Maring is a fellow at Washington, D.C.-based think tank, the Ethics and Public Policy Center, where she co-directs the Theology at Home project. She is also the editor for Theology at Home and the co-author of the Theology at Home book series. And she is the author of the book that we'll be really interested in talking about today, Awake, Not Woke, A Christian Response to the Cult of Progressive Ideology. And that book was so amazing and so very informative uh, that I was very honored that you uh, said that you'd be willing to come on today. So we're going to dig mostly into that book. Uh, she also studied at uh, she studied philosophy and theater at Westmont College in California and did graduate work at Franciscan University of Steubenville. So Noel, thanks so much for being on today. Thanks for having me. Great to be here, Reed. Uh, absolutely an honor of mine. I mean that uh, sincerely. When I read your book, I thought to myself, boy, what a breath of fresh air to hear a Christian who is also very effective and very informed. Um, and, and just quite frankly, after 18 years of ministry, I found some of that uh, lacking. And I'm just so glad to hear your voice in the space uh, that you're in to just really be talking about culture, just because I think we need to do that. So we'll jump into to the why, um, and perhaps maybe even do that a little bit here with this first question. But I'm just curious, because um, I had a Christian education as well. I got my master's degree in 2012 from a Christian university, uh, did a bunch of study um, in theology and philosophy were kind of my main stays. And I wanted to throw this in here, too, because I don't want to miss this uh, before I ask this question. Uh, so you studied theater. Um, I'm just kind of curious as a side note about that. So why? Uh, so it's like philosophy and then theater. So why? Why theater? Yeah. Both such very practical majors, right? Right. Uh, I just grew up in doing dance and theater. And so when I was picking a college, I thought, well, I'll just continue what I'd done all through high school. And uh, I do love, I, I love theater and uh, I, I haven't done it since I graduated from college, but, um, but I love to go to theater and I just, I like, I like the, that art form. I think it's really special and beautiful. Yeah. I, I really think philosophy in some way is, I think it's an art, but I also think it's akin to the theater because I think it's a way of trying to figure out how to communicate effectively to people. And I, I, all the, I just think at the end of the day, I think story is the shortest distance between truth and the human heart. So um, philosophy at the end of the day, I think, is, a, is an attempt at that, too. So uh, I'm curious about your studies, though. Before we jump into your book, I just want to ask you this, because I think in some ways my education should have been a canary in the coal mine uh, in terms of uh, of the fact that it's Christian education, it's religious education. And I saw many of the things that you write about in your book prevalent in my education, which I think, you know, if I dug into that a little bit more, um, I'll save people that story. But I think if I dug into it a little bit more, people would be very surprised about it. So I'm interested if anything in your educational background kind of prom promoted or provoked the the writing that you're doing today beyond just the um, material that you were studying, but maybe some of your experiences in the academy. Obviously, it's at the forefront of a lot of what we're talking about today about um, 
you know, just kind of the woke invasion of the academy, not to mention all of our institutions. And perhaps when that happens within Christian institutions, that's a time for us to just kind of let the alarm to, to sound off. But I'm curious, did you did you experience any of that in your education uh, background? Or um, was there kind of a, a, a prompting based upon your education that uh, that caused you to write uh, Awoke, Not Not Woke? Awake, Not Woke. Yeah, you know, during my time in college, I don't know if my antenna weren't too sensitive at the time or if it just wasn't as prevalent then as it is now. But actually, interestingly enough, uh, the things that happened at, at my college after I graduated helped prompt me to write this. Um, I, I started hearing more and more stories. I only live about half an hour from my college and I still love the college. I, you know, it's, it's a, it was I had great experience there and I, I think they still do a lot of good. But I kept, there are all these news stories coming out that the students were staging all sorts of woke revolts on campus about what relatively was a pretty benign issue. They're um, protesting, there's one one old chapel on campus and the president who had been there in the 50s, 60s, the mid-century of the last century, his daughter had died tragically in a car accident. He uh, dedicated this chapel to her and had this stained glass window commissioned. And it was a uh, white, uh, you know, depiction of Jesus with, you know, white skin and kind of light hair. And he was standing on top of North America, like on top of a globe, but happened to be standing on top of North America. So the students really found this to be, began, someone started the idea that this was really offensive and they wanted the school to replace it. And they, they wound up staging all sorts of protests with sticker or tape and over their mouth saying resist. And they're protesting when donors were coming. And it just seemed you know, and maybe there's more to the story than I tried to read as many of the articles from both viewpoints as I could. But it just seemed to me that there was sort of a, a mimesis happening there in the sense that they these were kids who were seeing that there is an avenue towards virtue, which is protesting injustice, you know, and to it gives them an incentive to look for injustice. How, how you know, how, how is there oppression here in my school? And and I think that get, that's a really perverse incentive. And I, and I just seeing it happening there, and then hearing it ha- about it happening at more and more schools and also seeing how some of my contemporaries in college were, you know, just on social media, you see what people think and how they're processing things. And I just noticed that more and more I was seeing a, a real kind of militant Christian element that was becoming more and more woke. And I wanted to dig into that and try to understand what was happening and, and why they were being so pulled by this movement. Yeah, that's great. Uh, and it's interesting. I know, and I think it's very fair of you to say that there might have been some things that you missed, but uh, quite frankly, that story sounds par for the course for what's happening in our society today. Um, so I'm surprised that there wasn't any uh, van- vandalism uh, of that of that window. Um, but yeah, so there's there's some things happening, and I wanted to start this way. I don't know if you're familiar with this story, but I've been kind of captivated in terms of what's going on in our, in our culture right now. So I'll just I'll share this. This is from Soren Kierkegaard. He said, a fire broke out backstage in a theater. The clown came out to warn the public. They thought it was a joke and they applauded. He repeated it. The acclaim was even greater. I think that's just how the world will come to an end. To general applause from wits who believe it's a joke. Reason I think that that's interesting to me uh, is uh, not that we clap like seals into the apocalypse, but simply just because uh, the way the news cycle moves, the way we're just becoming numb to the truth in society, I think it's hard for people to be moved. People, and maybe this is always the way we've been, we have to recognize a threat before we actually respond to it. The best, and this is a silly analogy, probably the best way I can think to explain it is that in my, the complex where I live, People do not pick up their dog's poop. And I think that they have to step in it before they finally, some people have to step in it before they finally start saying, okay, I'm going to pick up after my dog. So we have to recognize the threat before the alarm goes off, before we start responding to it. And so this is why I really love your book. I think that it can help us draw the, connect the dots between what's happening in the culture and some of the ideologies that perhaps are behind some of these cultural phenomenons, and especially for Christians. As we start to identify those things, it, I think it should awaken us to the reality of our response and what we should be doing in in the culture. So, maybe just generally, uh, why um, why did you write the book? Um, it, it, because it's very different than a theology of home in the series that you did there. Um, obviously, both still have you know, connecting points and similarities, but but obviously a very different book. So what was kind of the main catalyst for you writing um, your book, Awake, Not Woke? 
Sure. No, it's a great question. I, I have a few answers. I think the first and most immediate motivator was that it seemed to me to be a movement that was harming the very people it was claiming to help. Um, and that seemed like a, a real injustice, you know, that by under the guise of being compassionate, it actually was, you know, is a really merciless, merciless movement. Um, but I also really, I, I have, maybe it's a fault and it can be a fault or a strength depending on the situation and how I channel it. But I, I have a hard time with ideas that, and, and, um, you know, mandates or cultural norms that don't make sense to me, you know, and, and it seemed to me like the woke movement just time and again, just didn't make sense. Um, and there, there are also a lot of confusion, a lot of confusion surrounding it. So for example, like after the George Floyd murder, um, there were a lot of, you know, a lot of Christian friends marching with BLM and, you know, that, that their belief statement page got published and it was, you know, people were saying, well, why does a movement for racial justice want to queer the culture and disrupt the nuclear family? You know, what does that have to do with, with racial justice? And so I really wanted to understand, well, they're obviously connected and it's probably not coincidence. So why are these things interrelated and why are they integrated with each other? Um, and that was interesting to me to dive into. Uh, but 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 then ultimately, I think that I saw it as I started researching it more, and I was sort of my intuition already was that this was a movement that was really an anti-gospel had an anti-gospel message, um, and ultimately, I think is kind of operates parasitically off of you know the reigning waning residue of Christianity until it will replace it. I, or I think at least and and that movements. Um, in the inner logic of the movement, I think. Could, that's could what I stop it you right there and just ask you to unpack right. that because I think that's a great. Um, I think that's a great statement that you just made. That it's parasitic and it leeches on to the remnants of Christianity within a culture. Uh, so can you pack that a little bit? What like is it leeching on to in terms of uh, the Christian remnants in the culture? What is that remnant that Christianity is leaving behind that it's attaching to? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I think as Christianity wanes, then we ha we have an increasing culture that doesn't have sort of the habits of life of, of a Christian life. You know, the the, the disciplines and the the habits of virtue maybe yeah. are have become less emphasized. But there's still sort of these um, maybe sentimental understand or instincts towards it. So this that's why I think we see Christ become in our imagination sort of just like this um this uh, figure who doesn't demand anything of, of us but I'll, but just you know wants to incur or make us feel feel good you know yeah. um and comforted uh and you know there is something to that and there is you know obviously there's an order in which you you don't you know you don't want to go fire and brimstone with people who are wounded and you know need to feel hear the message of love so there's an order in which we communicate you know who christ is but i mean ultimately like you you we have to we have to know who he is in his fullness um, and so in other words, so I think by the, by operating or parasitically, what I mean is that a person, if we are a culture that is primed to not want to hear anything that demands something of us, but wants to want to hear, feel comforted, then a message that the woke movement provides is it takes the precept of you have to reach out in compassion, the, the Christian message is to be compassionate to people who are struggling on the margins. And that is a true Christian precept. Christians are supposed to walk with the marginalized and are supposed to walk with the suffering and oppressed. Um, but then it takes that right precept and inserts all these other conclusions into it that are really from an ideology, not from Christianity. And that's how it becomes truly, you know, a, a totalizing and reductive movement because it takes one filter and it makes it the only filter through which you can see it. So the only way you can love people is by having this ideology, you know, and the and the, the ideology basically is trying to love people through lies, right? And um, and through the uh, the denial of, of stable human nature, um, and 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 ultimately in denial of more any type of moral law. Yeah. Um, and so so this is you know fundamentally opposed to love. We know that truth and love are you know they're they're never they're not set against each other, but rather are you know they're they are one in 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 Christ and in, in ultimately too. So um, and the moral law flows directly from the nature of God. So we can't separate these things. And and I, and I, I don't think we people flourish when we do either, even on a natural level. You know, people want to understand that there is a way they can improve and a way that they can really be happy. And God has given us a, a, a path towards happiness, but it is a path that requires some requires some discipline um, and and not following our not always following our whims. So these it's a it's a big answer, but. Um, I don't know. Does that have to that? Count? Yeah, no, that's that fantastic because I've I've often thought, and maybe this is just another way of saying the same thing. I've often thought that 
many of the cultural movements of our day are relying upon a Christian idea of compassion. Um, and so what's happened is, is that maybe another way to say is they're guilting people into accepting ideas. Like the reality is, is that nowadays we believe that, um, many people believe that, that it's unloving to suggest that a man is a man and a woman is a woman, or that a man can have a cervix. If you, uh, if you don't accept that statement, well, then you're an unloving, bigoted human being, rather than the person that actually appreciates facts and appreciates telling telling the truth and now obviously truth could be used as a battle axe to hit people over the head with but but sympathy and truth are not in composite competition with each other and by the way I use the word sympathy because I think we're overusing the word empathy in our culture and I don't think we have as much empathy as we say we have access to uh, but anyway I, the way I put this is that I think sympathy is way it, it, that truth is way more powerful than sympathy um, and and I think that it's if we're not careful, we can allow sympathetic talking points from ideologues to lead us down a path that leads us further and further away from reality, certainly biblical truth. And 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 I think it's a slippery slope that we have to be careful of. I think the church, by and large, and I know we come from different Christian circles. Um, I come from the evangelical world, um, and I think you come from the Catholic world. Is that right? Yeah, my undergraduate is evangelical. Half my family is evangelical. So I, I, I you know, I'm... I'm comfortable in both worlds, but I am Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. And so I just think at least from my world and perhaps from yours, I think that there's many pastors who are falling for the temptation to um, veer away from the truth and just to change the message so that they can be more quote unquote loving, forgetting that some of the most loving things that you can do is is to tell the truth. Um, of course, mm. the way you tell it is important, but to tell it nonetheless. So I think that's really, really important for people to recognize. So perhaps maybe the next thing that we can kind of jump into is because I think that uh, one of the things that we have to do is we we have to help people understand what's going on. In chapter four of your book, um, you said this, uh, what's happening in culture would seem all too bizarre and utterly confounding were we ignorant of the history and the goals of systemic Marxism. Now, I think that that's the, where so many people are living in this space right now, and even Christians are resisting um, uh, Christian ideas, traditional Christianity and biblical truth, are, they're resisting it because of cultural talking points. And so many of us are living in this kind of confused space for like, we don't understand why we're re-normalizing gender to have like 78 genders and and climbing, right? Um, I was on a podcast just the other day and and L I said LGBTQIA+, and they were like, wait, 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 where did those last IAs come from? I hadn't heard that th that that's a thing now, but but it just seems like that's an ever increasing thing, right? Um, and uh, where are where are these these you know transgender story hour for our children? Where is that coming from? Where is even maybe something unfortunately banal as like defund the police? Where where are these cultural things coming from? And people are are just left essentially if they don't understand the underpinnings of these ideas to to maybe adopt a sympathetic view and say, which, you know, BLM has done effectively, just see it like you, Black Lives Matter. And so if you don't agree with us, then obviously you're saying Black Lives don't matter, right? Um, and so we're just, we're, we're threatened and extorted into following these cultural trends if we do not know where they come from. And this is what I find is the big thing that's lacking in the church is that we do not know our history well. We do not know the underpinnings of these cultural phenomenons. And if we did, we would understand the necessity for pushing back against them. So perhaps, I, I'm going to approach this kind of in a weird way maybe, but I, perhaps if you can, and I know this is a big thing, but if you can condense it as much as possible, could you give us a timeline of the woke movement, starting with Marx, moving into Gramsci, moving into kind of the critical theory of uh, the uh, of people like Horkheimer and stuff in, in Colombia, and then and then maybe even couch that too in terms of conflict theory and why that's important in terms of where we're at today. Sure. So, um, so in the book, I go through an origin section which traces this history, and I started with Karl Marx. Who actually really by using him, I'm actually starting with Hegel. So Marx was a big devotee of the philosophy of, of a German philosopher named Hegel. And Hegel came up with what he called the dialectic. 
which really explains a lot of the woke movement today. And the dialectic was basically just that he understood that all social movements has, or all, all of society basically has some uh, internal contradictions where there's going to be some some elements of society that are at, at odds with what with one another. So you'll start with the status quo, which you call the thesis. There'll be some the internal elements that are, you know, are, are contradictions. You know, so, for example, Marx took this structure and said, well, this is the ruling class and the working class. You know, this that this is this is an uh, internal contradiction because they cannot it's not a coherent or harmonious um, society when you've got this sort of economic oppression. And so at some point, the working class revolts against the ruling class. This is called the antithesis. And then they come up with a synthesis, which is the combination of these, you know, the what had been and what now is. And then you start a new thesis and then society just keeps going through these um, revolutions until and with each revolution, you're getting closer to a utopian state until ultimately Marx predicted we would be in you know, this communist utopia. Yeah. Um, but it only can be achieved through a series of revolutions. And so he really identified the enemy of revolution as being two things, the church and the family. Why? Because Christianity, he's, he rightly recognized, gives people a context for their suffering. It says, well, you know, I don't, I don't have as much as the next guy and I, you know, I have hardships in my day, but, you know, I'm, I'm given a model of embracing my cross. I can take my sufferings and they can be something that I can, I can grow closer to Christ through. Um, and I don't have to envy the other person. I don't have, you know, this life is not all there is. There's another life. And so that kept people from being angry and revolting against their circumstances. Uh, secondarily, is, the is this why is this why Marx said that uh, religion is the opium of the people? Yeah. So the religion was considered to to keep us out uh, from uh, from having a, a correct consciousness. It gave us a false consciousness where we thought we could be satisfied with a fundamentally oppressive life. Yep. Um, and the family, he said, really did the same because you know you the fa family life gives you a it it is by by definition sort of. There's a hierarchical structure to it. Children are, you know, subordinate to their parents, you know, in 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 a, in a healthy, well-ordered family, in a loving way, not in a dominating way. But there is um there 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 is a natural community there that really defies um, the power of an ideology. From it protects you from ideology in a way because it gives you a sense of belonging. It gives you a sense of um of of, of your personhood. Things that are really the 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 antithesis of what uh, revolution wants from people. The revolution wants you to feel diminished. It wants you to feel angry. It wants you to feel depersonalized right. until you are helpless and then rage enraged. Yeah. Um, so so this was what what this was a you know a very small snapshot of his formulation of the world. Um, and then after World War One, there were a group of German Marxists who were frustrated that the revolution had not come to pass. Marx had said it was inevitable, but the German um, proletariat had not risen up. And so they started this institute called the, uh, what eventually became to be called the Frankfurt School. And the, the point of the institute was to analyze why the revolution had not occurred and how can we bring revolution to the West. They were welcomed to uh, be sort of adjacent to Columbia University in 1935. And the Frankfurt School is really made up of a group of German Marxists who were also um, strongly had a strong neo-Freudian element to them. And this is really where you get compl uh, not conflict theory, excuse me, um, critical theory. So the critical theory originated in the Frankfurt School, where they realized on the heels of Gramsci, who was an Italian communist, that the revolution could not be fought merely on the terms of economics, that we had to broaden it in order to across broader classes of people and create different divisions throughout society. It cannot just be a class division. It should also be division based on race. It should be division based on gender and eventually division based on you know, sexuality as we see now and, and, um, and gender identification. So, so uh, they really saw three ways of seeding revolution, particularly in America, but throughout the West. And the three ways were revolution through the sexual revolution to break down all the sexual mores of the society. And this is, comes strongly from a neo-Freudian element, which we can talk about later, um, uh, through, the, through the culture. So a couple of the Frankfurt School guys went to Hollywood and realized they were sort of sickened by it. They thought it seemed like such a cheap art compared to the art they experienced in Europe. But they really see, saw how much Americans were taken by celebrity and how powerful that was. And so they really seeded this idea that all movies should be about oppression narratives. And I think we really see that now where almost every you know, Oscar winner is about some sort of oppression narrative, be it feminism, racism, homo, you know, homophobia, all these, you know, all the, all the hot button issues. Um, and then also through the academy, so through the school system. 
So, and, and I think we see how effective that has been, you know, decades later that all of the, this work that they put in, they really understood that revolution has to go underground at this point. You know, we have to be, it's not going to be a revolution that's fought in the streets, you know, or, le or at least not anytime soon. It's going to be a revolution that's seeded through changing the way people understand and view society and getting people to see all of society and all of human interactions as uh, struggles for power. That in every human interaction, someone's an oppressor and someone's an oppressed, and you have to identify that. And that's the goal of becoming a, a social justice warrior, finding that injustice and fighting against it. And it creates really creates a society. People are very suspicious, um, suspicious and defensive and accusatory, uh, and ultimately, I think, an extremely toxic society. But um, is that connect those dots? 100%. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the things that we're seeing now uh, in terms of how those dots connect to to the present. So how would you say cancel culture plays in to, uh, to some of those ideas and to like maybe even the ideas of resentment? Yeah, I mean, well, cancel culture... So any 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 ideology is or totalitarian regime, you know, in which this the woke movement really really mimics or actually embodies in some ways, has to. It's fundamentally based on a lie, right? Um, the lie that that their one filter is the only way to see the world. That every human dynamic is a power struggle. Simply not true. Yeah. Um, there are human dynamics that are actually mutually giving, mutually loving. Um, and, and, uh, but, but all the other fundamental lies that human nature can be fundamentally changed. And, um, that's, you know, what we've talked hinted about with a transgender movement. And the thing that just as a sidebar, the thing that's fascinating to me about the transgender movement is that, you know, the, it's an appeal to, to walk with these people who are on the fringe of society as though, because, and I think that people buy into it because they think, well, that's the loving thing. And it doesn't really demand anything from me. I'm not going to become transgender by telling them that they're okay. Right. But the thing we're not realizing is that it's actually a method of it's an ideological bomb throughout society. It's meant to destroy and dismantle uh, and destabilize all, all of our understanding what it is to be a human being. Yeah. And once you disrupt that understanding, then you can continue with the, you know, the, the ideological goal of reshaping human person, that human, that human beings can be deconstructed and reconstructed according to the vision of the ideology. We saw this in Maoist China, um, Stalinist Russia, and we're seeing it with the woke movement now. Yep. That's a sidebar. But um, so with cancel, cancel culture, so because there are these fundamental lies seeded into the ideology, you have to, you, the greatest threat to a lie is that someone's saying the truth. And so the only way that a lie or an ideology can perpetuate itself is through coercion, force, and silencing and shaming. Um, and that's what we see in, in cancel cultures that you don't just, you can't, the truth is not to the, another side is not to be tolerated. And the, the, you know, there have been essays that they've written about this very explicitly. Marcusa, who was a, a real celebrity at the Frankfurt School in the 60s, he wrote an, a famous pivotal essay called Repressive Tolerance, where he said, you, you cannot give equal side. We are not here to dialogue. We are not here to hear all sides. And any 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 um, ear that you give to you know the dominant point perspective, you know the, the traditional perspective, or you know the person who believes in or uh, in moral law, this is a perpetuation of their dominance, and so they have to be silenced. So, cancel culture is really fundamental to the movement. It's not incidental. It's not that they're being hypocrites. They're actually living up to their ideology, which is we don't want to dialogue. We want to dominate. Yeah. Yeah. So I, th I think sometimes we think it overwrought just because it's a word that's used a whole lot. But it's I think it's important for us not to to move too quickly past those things. And one of the reasons I think it is, is because of a word that you just said, um, destabilization. So the way I understand the movement is destabilization comes before the next stage, which is renormalization. And uh, so maybe I, I, I there may be some unpacking to, to do here. So I'm just going to throw this out there and see if there's anything you want to comment on it. But one of the quotes that I've taken from Marx that has stuck with me the most is that, uh, and I may paraphrase here a little bit, but it's 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 essentially necessary for the Marxist revolution, for communism to exist, for the destabilization of all existing conditions, for the removal of all existing conditions. So Marx, in a, in a lot of ways, is just a chaos theorist who wanted to throw everything in disarray because he thought that then people would devour themselves, there would be nothing but ashes left, and then from the ashes we could create something totally new. And we see this a lot, I think, in the deconstruction movement in Christianity or maybe just in the deconstruction 
deconstruction movement writ large. It's not that we're having dialogues about discussing about how we can do things better. It's that we are interested in tearing down the system entirely from the root system up, totally destroy it. There's no real uh, like discussion about what we're going to build in its place. All we're about is totally destroying stuff. And then once we destroy everything, we'll talk about what we're going to put in its place. And this is where the conservative inside of me just goes kind of nuts because I'm thinking to myself, well, there's some things that like the G.K. Chesterton quote, right? If you're going to take a fence down, ask why it was there in the first place. Before you start moving fence posts, figure out why that fence is there or else you're going to realize the hard way that it was there for a reason. Um, and so I'm just wondering, what, what can you speak to in terms of the way that we're seeing destabilization in society? Because I think that feeling that you call bizarre and utterly confounding is our response to destabilization. It's this unnerving, kind of unsettling, kind of maybe almost even gut instinct inside of us that something's not right here. I think that is regardless of your political perspective, unless you're on the far left, I think that's um, I think that's something we can all relate to. I mean, we're living in an age, and I don't want to ramble on because maybe you've got some things to jump in with, but we're living in an age where I, as an evangelical Christian, find myself applauding Bill Maher all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, how in the world do we get to the place where like, now be, me and Bill Maher have more in common than we do you know, not a, uh, distinct from each other. So, um, so maybe, uh, what, what would you say in terms of help, helping my audience members uh, understand the role of destabilization in society and the overthrowing of all existing conditions in the way that we're seeing that presently in our culture? Yeah, no, I mean, I think you explained it so well. Uh, I mean, I guess I would just point them to you know, what they're seeing now and what we've seen historically, right? So there are so many connections to what was happening in Mao's China with the pulling down of statues, burning of books, burning churches, um, you know, getting rid of everything that was old or traditional. Um, and and that it is really because it's a movement based on destruction, as you said, that that was truly, and it sounds, I think, it, I think it's hard for people to believe because it really does sound so radical. And most normal people don't think like this. So, you know, even my friends who are woke, they don't, I don't think they understand the full implications and the full logic of the movement. Um, you know, they just see it as a movement of goodwill and helping things and righting some, some old wrongs. But if you read the literature, it, it truly is not an exaggeration to say that they really, the, the point of critical theory is just to criticize everything that is. And fundamentally, it's a rejection of being itself, you know, that it is an anti-being movement, you know, which is you know, traditionally what we would understand theologically as being evil. You know, evil is... Uh, uh, the lacking of being, right? Evil doesn't have its own being, it's a deprivation. Um, and, and, and this is really what the movement is aiming to do. It's, it destabilizes through destroying. And I think it leaves us really unmoored. So here's an example. Um, you know, and, and I wrote an article about when Dr. Seuss got canceled. And I understand that he was, you know, you know, you know, he probably was not this pillar of virtue. I mean, I don't really know that much or actually even care that much about Dr. Seuss. But what I what I was trying to point out to people is that the, no one really the, the, the people who sought out this uh, this this um, agenda to destroy him or cancel him. Well, first, for one thing, they were avowed in critical theory, and um, I, I'm not I'm, I don't know for sure if they were avowed Marxists, but they were deeply into critical theory. And what and and the the goal of, of doing something like that, it's not really that anyone cares that much or that Dr. Seuss is doing harm or whatever. The idea is that let's take an icon, you know, that is in some small way plays into a common cultural history or common narrative that we have. It could be anything. It could be baseball. It could be, you know, um, Charles Dickens. It could be, you know, American football or something. You know, all of these things that you know that they're even in benign ways have united us and disrupt them and make them political to the point where we think, well, I read, I grew up reading Dr. Seuss. What did I miss? What did I not see? You know, how, what else don't I know? And I think the point is truly to both unmoor us from a common cultural back history, but also to make us not trust ourselves to think, you know, that there are all sorts of things. If he's racist, then anybody can be racist. And I don't, I don't know how to trust myself. So I have to trust the ideologues that are pushing this movement. I have to just side with the strong men who are saying, this is what's right. This is who's gone. This is who's okay. Um, and, and no longer understand that I am any access to reality. And that to me is one of the most disruptive uh, and destabilizing thing that we can do is to think that we can no longer reason. We can no longer reason together and we can no longer reason independently. We can't truly think things through. Yeah. And so we have to think, th think through things shallowly. And that's what the movement wants is shallow thinkers. That's why 
it operates on propaganda. It's because sloganeering is a way, of, it's a death of thought. It's a way to kind of hang a, a, our hat on something as, a, as on a sentence that we think we've thought through. Mm. We really haven't. It's just yeah. a, it's a, you know, a, a shorthand for thought, but it isn't real thought. Yeah. Uh, I think that, that's I why think- some people call what's happening on the left side of the political aisle now with so much of their sloganeering. Um, I, I think that's why they're trying to create a kinship between a religion and, um, and what's happening on that side, because uh, I don't like the kinship, quite frankly, but I understand where they're coming from in terms of saying that there's almost a liturgy behind like slogans like my body, my choice, that there's uh, there's just this kind of unthinking uh, fealty towards the sloganeering that's that's happening on the left. So I, I definitely think we're seeing that from um, from many different angles and many different places in our culture. But I want to I want to ask you a question about that because um, it's really important to me because I've really wondered where is this stuff coming from? What's what's the incubator for the um, kind of the cultural phenomenons we're seeing right now? Whether it's cancel culture, the renormalization of gender, totally defying scientific fact, or uh, maybe even. Um, and, and it's so difficult, too, because in some ways there should be racial reckoning in America. There should be racial conversations that we're having. But but I'm also a little bit disturbed that all of this comes on the heels of all these other things that are happening culturally. Um, so maybe you throw that into the mix, too. But where what's the incubator for cultural Marxism, critical theory, and its infestation into so much of the uh, institutions that we see in America. Where do you think those things are coming from? I have an idea, but I'd love to hear kind of your thoughts on on the origin of it. Like, where's it coming from presently so that it's proliferating the way that it is? I mean, I think the greatest engine and conveyor belt for the movement has been the academy, right? Mm-hmm. You know, this is what we've seen for years. And I think that, uh, you know, the, with the safe spaces and the, you know, the militancy that we've seen increasing on campuses, a lot of us have just dismissed it as saying, well, they're going to go on the real world and they're going to see that's not how the real world operates. And, but, you know, that I'm not the first to say this. It's almost like the whole culture has become a campus, you know, <laughs> where the, the, that, that sort of militancy is really, is really, um, is really forceful. And, and, and I think the fact that it's so forceful is why it gains so much power. So you've seen like, even in the New York times, which is, you know, a pr- pretty left-wing, rag, there's still an old guard that I think is more classically liberal instincts, you know, open conversation and that type of thing. But in the, you know, the, the, what I've read about the internal conflicts and, you know, Barry Wise, who was, you know, liberal um, lesbian journalist, brilliant woman, she started, she had to leave the New York Times because the the militancy of the cancel culture was too intense um, and too appalling to her as a journalist and a fair-minded thinker. Um, and so, but I think that the, the old guard is really kowtowing to this new militant youth um, and, and because they're so forceful and the old guard doesn't want to, you know, they want to feel still relevant, you know, there's this, this dynamic that happens, but in some ways, I think it's just the air we breathe, right? You know, I mean, so much of what we've been raised in, it's, you know, this, the, I go through three dogmas and the second dogma is basically expressive individualism that we are, we are, my identity is what I desire. And very particularly, we identify with our, our sexual desires and more, um, even more specifically, we identify with our sexual desires that are non-conforming to, you know, traditional mores. Um, but that sort of ideology is so pervasive throughout culture, even without being on the campus. You know, I think that every movie me, movie you watch, almost most conversations you have, television shows you watch, we're all built around this idea or breathing this idea of expressive individualism. It's very hard to escape. So, um, yeah, I think it's incubated in throughout all the institutions of society at this point, and that's why it's so hard to identify in some ways and so hard to um, pull yourself out of, because it really is truly just all around us. Yeah, and what do you think the collateral damage, because let's, let's turn the conversation now to kind of the faith-based community, because this is where I've kind of spent my space, this is what I think IndieThinker indie by and large is dedicated to, is kind of figuring out what our response is. Not to be merely reactionary, but is there a Christian response to some of the things that we're seeing in society? And if so, what is that response? So what do you think the collateral damage of not responding is? Or what do you think um, the real need for Christians to respond to some of these cultural trends is? Yeah, it's such a big conversation and I think an important one because, you know, I think a lot of Christians, including myself at times over the years, have has felt like, 
well, even, you know, I might be interested in politics, but I need to make sure that politics are not, you know, getting in the way of sort of more mission, more mission oriented apostolate or even, you know, evangelical instinct um, to really get to know people and be true, authentically friends, friends, friends with them and, um, and try to reflect Christ as best as I can possibly can um, in order that they might see him. Uh, but I do think that we are at a point where we can no longer be neutral. And I see a lot of churches kind of try to take this neutral stance. We don't get into political issues. Right. Well, you know, historically, that's not been the church's role. The church actually has gotten into political issues when they are very deeply impacting human persons. So, for example, a lot of church leaders were leading um, walking with Martin Luther King Jr. and walking you know, against racism. Yep against segregation and that that no one would say now like oh well they shouldn't have gotten to politics of course they should have they were their shepherds you know that that's the role of the christian is to lead society in those ways that are um exhorting the dignity of the human person against injustice um and so i think it's similarly now it's important to realize that you know we might not be interested in politics but we no longer can remain neutral i don't think that we can remain on the fence because this movement really is harmful to human persons on a natural level unjust, unmerciful, and ultimately very supernaturally dangerous. I think this is fundamentally a spiritual battle. And so I think Christians can no longer remain on the fence at this point. Yeah. And I'm just kind of curious. I hope, I hope this doesn't sound too pessimistic because I promise I'm an optimist. Um, I personally think at least in the circles that I run in, I think we are so reactionary in Christianity. I run in kind of the more millennial pastor, um, seeker sensitive movements and uh the the buzzword for those guys is relevant to the culture um are we too late because we have the op we have the unfortunate habit of reacting to the culture in in a knee-jerk way far you know way later than we should have are we too late to really um, stop the woke ideology that's infesting churches? And even some big notor pastors with notoriety, um, are we too late to kind of stop that trend? I'm an optimist too, so I would say definitely not. Um, but I, I am also extremely bad at predicting the future, so I don't, <laughs> I don't know what's going to happen. But I, I can't. I. I, I don't think that there's any reason to despair. You know, there's always the possibility of turning things around and redemption and all these things. Um, but I, I think that, you know, it takes, because it really is every people, people are called in different circumstances in their lives to have a different sort of witness. I mean, obviously I'm so out there with my opinion as a writer that, you know, my liberal friends now, you know, they always kind of knew I was conservative, but now I think it's just like, Oh, wow, you're really conservative. <laughs> Um, Did you storm the Capitol uh, on January 6th? <laughs> um, but it, I, I mean, I think I would just encourage Christians and particularly pastors um, that, you know, this is an opportunity to really be a leader, you know, and that it's so hard to pull ourselves out of the age in which we're in. But, it, but for a Christian, it really is imperative because, you know, there, there's not another G.K. Chesterton quote that, you know, we run the danger of being slaves to the age in which we're in. Um, and that is a type of slavery, right? To not be able to think outside of, um, of the age we're in now. And I, and the, the way that I think we can start to think outside of it is through reading the stories of other Christians who've come before us 100 years ago, 200 years ago, martyrs of the church. Um, obviously prayer, reading the Bible, you know, the, reading about, you know, the, trying to find the universal human experience and how people found courage in hard times um, and how to speak the truth in love, you know. Um, but but I don't, because the reason why it's so 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 confusing, I think, is because, there is such a strong message telling us to sh to shut up, yeah. <laughs> telling us that we should not speak about hard truths. Yeah, and that's simply a lie. And so, tr but that doesn't mean that we go around with our wagging our finger and like pedantic scolds, right? That's an unbecoming um, posture for a Christian as well. So, how we do that, define, you know, get beyond those messages that are confusing us, but also um, do it with prudence and with the Holy Spirit operating through us, and not with our own, you know our own desire to just kind of rage against the society, you know, that, you know, that's, there's other extremes we can go to that are very problematic too. Yeah. Yeah. I think, uh, I think in the past, perhaps we've done that a little bit and maybe ruined some credibility. And I think that that's kind of what we're battling now too, is that like, we don't want to have that chicken little syndrome of the sky is falling, but also too, like, 
I, I'll just put it this way. I think we we would be better off being accused of speaking too much than not speaking enough. Like, we don't want history written about us to be anything like what is written about the German church in World War II, um, who stands by while atrocities are, are taking place. Now, obviously, that's a little bit uh, hyperbolic, I suppose, given where we are at presently, because there's certainly an overwrought, yeah, kind of... Uh, association to Nazism in, in society today, and I'm not meaning to say that, but I am meaning to say that we do need to speak. We, we, do, need to, um, we do need to have a voice in the culture. Edmund Burke was right when he said, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is for good people to do nothing. So, so I do think we need to have a response. And I, I want to ask you here if uh, one of the things you wrote in your book is a really necessary response. Before I do that, I kind of have a just a personal question I wanted to ask you because of um, dovetailing on what we just talked about uh, with kind of the infestation of the woke movement in institutions, in the academy, but also in the church, because I think that it's undeniable that this is happening, that we have pastors who are way less likely um, to speak about biblical sexuality. We have pastors who are way less likely to be pro-life. We have pastors who, uh, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, and so, uh, so I'm curious about kind of if you have ventured into this, because this is something that's captivated my thinking a lot lately, too, in the realm of the church. Have you, are you familiar with the podcast, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill? Uh, you know, I listened to some of that. I did. I, I didn't know much about Mars Hill before. I just heard the name, you know, over the years. But yeah, I listened to some of it. It's fascinating. I want to finish it. Yeah, so it's very good. Um, and, and and it almost is ominous to kind of bring it up in this conversation. But one of the things that, uh, and I don't know where you stand on this, but uh, perhaps Theology of Home um, kind of alludes to this, and this is why I'm asking, Um but one of the big talking points throughout uh, the rise and fall of Mars Hill is what evangelical churches do to abuse women. Um, now, while there may be some truth to that, ultimately what's really behind that is that they refuse to adopt a scriptural standpoint of complementarianism. They, um, they rather are adopting a view of egalitarianism. Now, the interesting thing there for me, and this is why I kind of want to dovetail it with some of the woke invasion of the church, is that... It would be one thing to disagree on a biblical basis of um, uh, for complementarianism and to uh, affirm egalitarianism, but what they actually do throughout the podcast is they demonize complementarianism without the use of scripture from a from more or less kind of a feminist talking point in culture. And throughout, there's just been this thing going on inside of me that I've just thought to myself, man, this is. This is reminiscent of what we're experiencing in the culture here. The rise and fall of, of, of Mars Hill in some ways seems like an indication of what's really going on in the church, because then they'll even go as far as to kind of distance um, Christianity from the belief in miracles and uh, espouse certain kind of Christian liberalism uh, in, in different ways throughout the podcast that just kind of get my discernment meter kind of registering. So... I'm wondering um, if you sense that at all in that podcast. I know you haven't listened to a lot of it, but if you sense that at all in that podcast or if you feel like there is a sense in which um, the woke movement is mainstream in the church. Because obviously Christianity today, right? I mean, the name uh, evokes that idea of mainstream Christianity, and certainly I would think that they would espouse themselves to be kind of a journalistic uh, endeavor to speak about mainstream Christianity. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, 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 I actually, for a long time, I thought about writing a book about the male men, uh, role of men and women from the perspective of a, of a Catholic versus from the perspective of an evangelical, because I think they can be really related, but they, I think they're, I have some, some senses that they're different, but I, I haven't studied it in depth, so I hesitate to speak too much. But for example, you know, I, I'm, we're in a very traditional Catholic community, no birth control, you know, we have six kids, we, all, most of our friends, our friends around here are, you know, six, nine kids, you know, um, very traditional. Uh, but, but when, but the, the phrase headship almost never comes up. Whereas I hear that much more associated with evangelicals. And I don't know why that difference is, but I think there's something happening there. Um, and I wonder if, um, well, I write in the book about, about the importance of understanding, for example, man, I think is really a, a 
called to be an, an icon of authority. You know, it's in his deeper voice, the broader shoulders, more commanding stature. And I think women are called to be an icon of innocence in the world um, and virtue. And that doesn't mean, and, and nurturing, obviously. And that doesn't mean that men can't be nurturing or women can't have some authority or leadership. Um, it just means that these are different expressions of God's love and and. Um, and, but I almost and, wonder if there are Christians today and pastors who would just balk at that idea, right? That there is this really obvious difference between a man and a woman. I think there probably are, you know, and, and you know, there's some ways in which the caricature of, you know, the domineering fundamentalist husband, you know, that has so fulfilled our imaginations that we're constantly kind of fighting that old battle. And I don't know if that's a, that, you know, this is an old C.S. Lewis quote that we're every generation fights their parents' battle, not the battle they're currently facing. So, for example, um, where it's the fire, the fire and brimstone preacher, preacher might have been more prevalent, you know, in my parents' generation or, you know, different generation. What's our what's our temptation now? Our temptation is to be cowardly, right? So you kind of have to work against your natural inclination. The natural inclination of the age is not to be fire and brimstone or, you know, um, but rather to be too um, docile to the culture. Um, so, you know, it's loosely related to, I think, what you're talking about with the complementary complementarianism. Um, but I certainly think that that to that one of the goals of the woke movement is to eliminate utterly any meaningful difference between men and women. And that, that part of the restoration of the culture is for men to truly re remember and reclaim how to be men and for women to really truly embrace their womanhood. Um, and, and that cannot be in, in a shallow sort of just merely role based way. Um, but I think it's a, it's a much deeper idea than that. Um, and, and, you know, for example, I mean, I think that the, the I always, one of the things I say sometimes in talks is the, the truly strong man is the holy man, and, you know, and holiness is, you know, our model is Christ, which is a servant type of leadership. It's not a dom, Christ never led through domination, you know, but he was strong. He was utterly manly, but he was a true gentleman. He was a gentle man. So he was manly, but he was also gentle, you know, and I think that there's something powerful in that because it shows a certain self-restraint and self-command. Um, you know, and that it's sort of a weaker man that has to, you know, uh, sort of operate through domination or, you know, these old caricatures. So, right. um, yeah, I don't know if that answers your question yeah, well enough. I, I, I think there's a lot of that that goes into just the misunderstanding of what meekness is, uh, that meekness is not weakness. Meekness is controlled strength, that it's almost like the Superman thing, right, is that you can be Clark Kent when you need to be. Um, and that's who Jesus was. He was, he was the strongest being on the planet and in the universe, but yet had restraint and knew how to be tough when he needed to be tough, knew how to be tender when he needed to be tender. Um, and, but, but, I, but I really wonder anymore if, if at least the pastors in the circles that I run in understand that anymore, because strength nowadays is almost immediately perceived as white cisgender hierarchy, and, uh, and it's, a, it's just you try to avoid it if at all possible. Um, and, 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 and we just defer to this weak position instead. So I guess that brings us to the, to the final thing that I wanted to ask you about. And you write about this. And if there's, if there's other things that register to you, maybe even as more important, but this is the one that just comes to mind for me. I wonder if some of the cure beyond just the obvious and from our framework of the gospel, um, a true revelatory understanding of Jesus Christ, I wonder if a reclamation of honor culture is something that we desperately need to truly fight off the tendencies toward intersectionality, toward grievance, toward resentment, toward victimization. So instead of um, people having a high place or a place of... Uh, prominence or priority in culture based upon how victimized they are, a la intersectionality. Um, if we need to try to, as Christians, try to help people reclaim prominence in culture through virtue and through honor, through through truth-telling, through honesty, and um, through courage. I mean, this is one of the things that I think probably is the thing that's captivated me a lot lately. I think this cultural movement has revealed in me my lack of courage, my lack of, uh, of fighting and speaking up when I know that there is 
social repercussions. I think Christians are living more and more and more in that space, is that there's social repercussions for what you believe. Um, and of course, we see this all the time, too, in pop culture Christianity, is that pastors cannot speak about some of the things that the Bible clearly says, or else they're going to lose followers, or else they're going to have the problem Jesus had. You know, people will walk away. And the the big church that they've built up over years and years and years is in jeopardy if they really tell the truth. Um so we have to be careful about that, um, and maybe too much. But I'm just wondering about what honor culture, um, how honor culture plays into the remedy for, for our times. Yeah, no, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, you know, actually in the, the book, I talk about this study with some sociologists talk about three different types of culture, honor culture, dignity culture, and victim culture. Um, and I would say that uh, honor culture is probably an antidote in some ways more directly to what we're experiencing now in victim culture. But dignity culture is the one that I think is more closely aligned maybe with the Christian um, call of being, which is that, you know, with honor culture, your name is, you know, your reputation is is extremely important, which isn't necessarily bad. You know, reputation is in, in people's names should be respected and should not be slandered. Yeah. Um, but dignity culture really embodies the Christian understanding that even if any, even if you're slandered, even if you're, you know, you're insulted, even if you're hated, that there is some dignity that you have that is not dependent on the, 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 um, the opinions of other people around you. It's only found in your, your, um, your being a daughter or son of God. Um, and that's something that's so the old saying sticks and stones can break my bones or it's going never hurt me. Yeah. That, that truly there is a dignity in every person that is, that is, um, inseparable from them. Uh, and that, and, and that might give us a perspective of being able to be, you know, despised in this world. If, if that's, if that's what, what Christ is calling us to be, um, even more, I think, than the focus on, on the honor culture. The thing that I think is so dangerous about now is that, you know, the, the victimhood culture, we really have created the society of inter of constant roiling conflict because people are competing. You gain, you gain moral stature based on how you've been harmed. And so, so everyone is kind of competing to be more harmed, you know, um, you know, how they, Olympics it's been called. Yeah. yeah the Olympics. Yeah. Um, so yeah. And, 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 and the, the, the odd thing about this too, is that it gives, it gives people, other people so much power over you. So for example, with the transgender movement, if I can speak into reality in defiance of my bodily my bodily reality, I, I can speak my new identity just through my words. That means that someone else can take it away with their words. And this is why there, you know, there's so much coercion of using the right pronouns because everyone else's opinion and, and um, everyone else affirming this whole new metaphysical understanding of what a human person is um, can either destroy or sustain your lie. And so it gives people so much power over your reality, you know, even how people talk now about my reality, you know, this type of thing, um, rather than having a common reality. Uh, so, yeah, so I think victim cultures, you know, where we're headed with it is going to lead nowhere good. Um, and there's a lot to be learned from honor culture, but I, I think I would lean more into dignity culture. Yeah, that's great. Leave it to the cisgender white Christian male to talk about honor culture rather than dignity culture. But <laughs> Um, but I, I, I think both are just absolutely needed in this hour, and I think people could get a whole lot from your book. I think this podcast is is an attempt to uh, really try to help Christians respond to develop a Christian, a robust Christian worldview, so that they can uh, be the answer that people are looking for in society. And and if we just become an echo of the culture, we are not going to be that answer. They can find that wherever they want. But the one thing that that people I, we know are desperately really looking for is a is a thoughtful Christian response to what's going on in in the world and that has always been in vogue and it's never not been needed so for what you've done in in your book and I know it is incredibly hard to write a book I'm presently working on right now um, I just want to say thank you for uh, all the work and all the effort that you put in in writing uh, awoke not uh, awake not woke um, so let us know how we can follow you how we can buy the book and uh, how we can stay up to date with some of the things that you're writing Sure. I have a, a place for my personal writing, which is just my name, noellamaring.com. There's a subscription there. I'm not great at sending out emails through it, but I'm trying to get better at it. Yeah, I, I also am um, an editor of theologyofhome.com, and we have a shop there. You can buy our books. And um, yeah, Wake Not Woke is available there or anywhere you buy books, any of the evil big tech companies also, as well. <laughs> yeah. And I'll, uh, I'm going to do this. I'm going to buy um, some copies that I can give out to some of the people who are on our subscriber list. Uh, so I'll let you guys know 
know how you can do that um, at a later point in time. But for now, uh, thank you so much, Noel, for being on. I look forward to potentially maybe talking with you in the future as you dig into maybe uh, writing some other things, a book on uh, the role of men and women in the church and uh, in the home, and uh, as you continue to do that with theology of, of, of home. Um, so thanks so much for being on today. Thanks so much, Free. This was great. And you've provided a great forum with a lot of courage and your voice is important. So thanks so much for doing what you do. Likewise to you. Thank you so much. And uh, bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for watching. Our thanks again to our guests for being on the show today. Indie Thinker with Reed Uberman was brought to you by our sponsors. If you like what you heard today, please do us a big favor and give it a five-star review and like it and share it with friends. And if you want to hear more awesome guests, make sure to check out past episodes. IndieThinker is a nonprofit paid for by our sponsors and the generous gifts of people like you. In order to hear more great guests like you did today, please consider giving a tax-deductible gift by going to IndieThinker.org. And just remember, your voice matters, but infinitely more when you think for yourself.